0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of May 2023. We are coming off a week where we saw some exceptionally warm temperatures in southeast Alaska. Sitka hit over 80 on the official weather station at the airport The airport is often cooler than other places because it is out on the water and uh, more subject to the influence of that marine layer. And interestingly enough, that 80 degree temperature was just a brief spike where an east wind came and presumably blew the warmer inland air out over the airport. And then a change in the wind brought the marine layer back and it dropped 20 degrees almost in 30 minutes or so. So quite a dramatic temperature shift there on that day, but it's the earliest 80-degree day by a long shot for Sitka. I think uh, there might be one from very last couple of days in May back in the 60s. We are into the season of longer days and warmer temperatures. I'd love to hear what you're seeing. If you're getting out, please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, and let me know what you're seeing. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded earlier this spring with Andy Zabo, Leah McPherson, and Dana Block. Andy is the director of the Alaska Whale Foundation and spends his summers at Baranoff Warm Springs at their field station there. He's a returning guest, and this time he brought with him Leah and Dana, who are both graduate students. They were in town working on a project investigating the body condition of humpback whales using drone imagery. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Andy describing this project and how it got started. I think
1: we first came out here to work on this project in 2018 or 2019 in the fall and then returned again in the spring. And the idea is we have these whales in Sitka Sound that are, basically this is the stopover before they migrate to Hawaii, or at least we think it is. And it's also the place they return to first on their return from Hawaii. Um, And so it's a really good place to look at their body condition or their blubber reserves. because they're either as fat as they're going to be or they're as thin as they're going to be when they come back from Hawaii, because obviously they're fasting when they're down there. So we've been doing it for, I think, three years we've been out here. Um, And I think you were saying about the bubble netters that uh, you have seen or you have seen more of them over here. We have not really recorded many bubble netters in November um and i think that has to do with what the herring are doing they might be a little bit deeper or the aggregation is spaced out a little bit more or they're just not as abundant at that time but this time of year we do actually see it and increasingly we're seeing it and again lee and dana can certainly talk to that
0: so do you actually look at these from the drone in hawaii then like a month ago or a couple weeks ago
2: So the whales that we saw in Hawaii a couple weeks ago probably aren't the same ones that are here now, but we do a field season uh, in Maui and Hawaii for three months, so the beginning of January until the end of March, and a lot of the whales that we see down there do end up in southeast Alaska. So yeah, the idea is just kind of see how many we can resample um, between both areas and see kind of the cost of migration and, you know, how that's reflected in different years, depending on the habitat and what's going on in the food webs.
0: So I suppose from a practical matter, you get enough data, you can look at average body condition across them, but it's probably as or more interesting to, to do matched matched pairs like You get the same whale at one place and the other place. And ideally, I guess, coming and going Mm -hmm. three times and say, okay, what happened to this particular whale or these particular whales? And then you can look at, at, you know, the the changes a little more directly.
2: Yeah, and we do both. I should say that this is primarily the project for a lab mate of mine, Martin Van Aswegen. So I'm kind of filling in for him right now and helping him collect data. But he's done a lot of the bulk of this work, and it's been really cool to see him do that it is very exciting in Maui when we see a whale where like he'll know that oh we we had this one last year in in Sitka or in Warm Springs or something and those data points where you do get the same animal in both places especially you know potentially multiple years in a row are even more valuable I think than kind of the average that we get.
0: I remember talking to people and I'm like, oh, man, the whales are so skinny out there. And this was a few years ago, I think, when we had that warm water blob thing. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, they don't look skinny. (laughs) But they're like, oh, they totally look skinny. So what is it when you look for when you're looking at a a whale? For those of us who just see whales are massive animals, and they're massive even when they're skinny, but like a skinny whale as opposed to a a not skinny whale.
2: Yeah, so it's maybe easier to see from a drone because you can actually look at the width of the animal, which is harder to see from a boat, but... You can kind of see like the area along their back, their spine, it's narrower um, around their dorsal fin if they're skinnier, if they don't have a lot of blubber there. From the drone, we kind of see a lot of change around the area of the pectoral fin and behind the pectoral fin, they'll tend to bulk up and become skinnier kind of just in the middle of the animal there. but. I'm personally maybe not the best at spotting it from a boat. <laughs> but I'm always looking at the drone controller. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: fair enough. And you can definitely see it from a boat as well without the drone perspective there yeah. are, you'll see the scapula for example and things are a little bit more uh, That's what I obvious. think
0: one of them one of the whale biologists here was telling me they look a little knobbier mm-hmm. maybe is is How how they describe I don't remember how they described it exactly, but I guess it's kind of the bones starting to to show. Yeah, and
1: and to what Leah was saying, the way it's actually quantified is when we fly over with the drones, um, you can actually using the we have a laser altimeter on there, and that allows us to estimate the altitude to a high degree of precision of the drone or the camera on the drone over top of the whale, and then we have a flat lens, so we know the field of view, and using those two pieces of information. You can measure the length of the whale from the rostrum to the tip of the tail, and then its body width at basically 5% intervals. And from that, you can model its actual volume. And so when you're looking at it in the summer, in the late summer, I should say, each of those little intervals will be much wider. Mm. And then when you look at it in the springtime, you'll see, oh, they're just much narrower in key points along the body. Not around the caudal peduncle by the tail necessarily, but certainly up towards the midsection of the whale in the head. Mm. Is where you really pick that up.
0: So you could like do an overlay of like a direct overhead shot, and you can see the the kind of like chubby whale versus skinny whale, same whale, yeah. And and
1: and you were asking about seeing the same whales. No question. Over the years, we've definitely seen the same individuals. There's a whale that's out there right now that they've been seeing, Defenestration, who's a female that's had a calf for how many years? Have we seen at least two?
3: Two calves recently.
1: Two in the last 3 years. Um, I think, right? No interval in Four between. Years.
3: 4 there years? Is, I think a one year interval.
1: So you can really see a difference between once they've given birth and they come up here and then they're lactating and all that energy's going to the calf and none's actually going to the bomb um, versus years where she doesn't have a calf and she's much more robust or rotund.
0: Mm. So they're are, are you able to, I guess I guess that was a question I remember hearing is like, well, they go to Hawaii, they don't eat at all. And then they come back here, and then they start eating again. And, you know, the assumption, oh, clearly they're losing losing energy, uh, like working through energy reserves. But has there been any sense of, like, just how much that's happening? And I, presumably that's what you're looking at with this work is to try to do some, actually, energy budgeting based on, okay, mm-hmm. so body mass, mm-hmm. making some simplifying assumptions, presumably about how much of that's fat versus mm-hmm. other, other tissue, and then...
1: Yeah. And this has been, as Leah was saying, one of our grad students, Martin Van Aswegens. that's the nature of his project is looking at how much they're gaining and losing. And he's really focusing on the migration and Hawaii side of things right now. And the estimate for an average individual is about 35 percent of the body volume is lost by the, from the time they leave here until they return back here, mm-hmm. roughly three and a half to four months later. So you can imagine if you're a whale and you're contemplating, do I go down and migrate to Hawaii and engage in breeding? Not if I can't lose 35% of my body volume. Right. And you alluded to the blob that we experienced a few years ago. Around that same time, yes, there were a lot more emaciated whales that we're seeing, but also a lot more whales here Mm overwintering in all months of the year during the winter months. And it seemed like that was because these individuals just did not have the fat reserves to make that migration.
0: Yeah, it you know it reminds me of the like the uh, epic shorebird migrations that you hear about the uh, the godwits and others. I think also the the small songbirds that have to go across the warblers across the Gulf of Mexico and obviously it's a very different scale of, of size, but they're losing similar amounts of of energy reserves, body fat essentially, as they're as they're flying. You know, seventeen day flight for those. Uh, Godwits that are leaving Alaska and flying nonstop to New Zealand, which hopefully seems
1: without safe. a headwind.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, running across presumably storms and stuff along the way, so it's just kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe somebody has kind of looked at this at the different species and how much, you know, how much basically bodies can can build in for these long trips and of course in a whale which you have so much mass that Mm -hmm. that uh, and traveling in the water presumably is a little more efficient than flying Mm -hmm. in terms of energy usage
2: yeah that's incredible I mean with a whale it kind of makes sense you know there are these large animals they travel relatively slowly but imagining a small bird going from Alaska to New Zealand I mean with a high heart rate like that and just flapping a bunch it's crazy.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it is pretty remarkable what the um, satellite tags, you know, basically satellite transmitters, they're able to do with those birds and, and see. And they bulk up a lot. I mean, they eat a lot of stuff there out in western Alaska and, and get ready to fly. And then, uh, yeah, and then they fly. I think that those ones can land on the water and be okay. Some birds can't. But yeah. I've, yeah, I've seen sure. marbled godwits in the water here before. Oh, yeah. before. okay. Just strangely, they're out there acting like ducks. Uh, there was one <laughs> that was here into late fall, like early winter one year. And one day I noticed it out there with the mallards just offshore. And I was Wild. like, oh, that's weird. But, uh, yeah, I don't. I think that they prefer not to from mm-hmm. the sounds of it. So it is. it is remarkable what these birds are doing. And the whales, I guess, are a little more challenging can you satellite tag them and and have it last long enough to see their their round trip
1: mm-hmm. you can uh not the round trip. not the round not trip. the round trip i think the average duration last time i checked for a, for a what we'd call a deep implant tag these are the ones that'll actually go through the blubber and affix to the muscle tissue which is a little bit inhumane but for certain applications they seem to be appropriate either way um it's about a month and a half is how long one oh, okay. of those tags will transmit for on a humpback whale. I participate in projects where we put them on sperm whales, and they've lasted for two years. Then the issue becomes the battery power of those transmitters. But basically, the whales that have been tagged in the North Pacific humpback whales, I think a month and a half is about the largest migration. So if you really want to see that migration, you got to come very late in the season here. Late November, uh, early December would be the time to do it. Or you go down to Hawaii in late March and try and get some of those whales just before they start migrating back.
0: So are there still some whales in Hawaii right now? And that are kind of like, how long do they end up holding on there yeah. until their last um, ones leave?
2: There's still whales there now. I've definitely, I do field work in April off Oahu, and we see whales every April uh, throughout the end of the month. So there's always some stragglers in April and May. But I believe they've been seen every month of the year in Hawaii. Oh. Um, I'm sure the summer months, it's kind of, I don't know if they're supposed to be there or if I got confused, but certainly in April, we still have them. Um, but I think in fewer numbers.
0: Well, it reminds me again of kind of like birds, young birds that aren't breeding because it takes them a couple of years. Like waterfowl, for example, there was a, a tule goose, which is a subspecies of greater white fronted goose that showed up on Swan Lake last year, with the last uh, May with a, a collar. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I was able to get the tag. But like I took enough pictures of it because it was right at Swan Lake, so it was pretty easy to observe that I was able to get the, the number on the on the band. And so I uh, was able to find out. I think I submitted it to the banding laboratory, and I got an email back from the person who banded that bird, and she told me all about it and said it was a young male. It was a hatchier bird last year. They'd actually banded at least one of its parents, if not both, and she was curious if he was still, because he'd hung out with his parents through much of the winter, or at least with the one that was banded uh, and collared. But I I hadn't seen another one. So she thought that maybe it was part of a bachelor flock, like they weren't going to be breeding this year, and so they're not really in a hurry to get up to the breeding ground. They kind of wander around more. And, and I wonder if it's, like, I don't know how long it takes a humpback whale to get to breeding age. where And maybe with males, like, I don't know how, how the whole process works. Like, are there dominant males that are kind of, take, you know, basically ruling the roost, so to speak, and so the younger males are, are kind of, you know, wandering about the edges hoping, hoping for something and waiting their turn or, or how that all works. I don't know if any of you know the answers to those questions or not. But
1: It's been observed surprisingly few times mating at humpbacks, if at all. I can't even say I'm aware of an observation of a humpback whale breeding. Um, certainly with gray whales and right whales, um, people see that. Uh, It's very visible at the surface, and there's lots of individuals participating simultaneously. Um, But what we do know with humpbacks, um, they tend to all mix, males and females, on the breeding grounds. But what you get is this sort of snowball effect of these females swimming around, gradually picking up males as they go. And you'll get these, these heat runs or comp pods where you'll have multiple males all basically mobbing a female and competing to get close to her. Presumably when she goes into heat, when she becomes receptive, that'll be the opportunity for those males or that male uh, to breed with her. But again, we haven't seen that.
2: Hmm.
0: And at what age do they start being able to
1: breed? Probably the early teens.
0: Okay. So they've got a few years where they're just sort of... Mm -hmm doing whatever they do, I guess. They're still migrating during that time to Hawaii and back, even without breeding? Or?
1: Relatively little known about okay. young um, sub-adult individuals. We don't see a lot of them, surprisingly few of them. You don't see calves very often in subsequent years. They obviously do turn up in the population later, but um, so we're not really sure. Almost certainly they do migrate back with their mom or, or migrate some of the way back, um, so they familiarize it themselves with that route. Um, and in subsequent years, they will return to the areas where they went with their mom. So it seems mm-hmm. like that's kind of ingrained that
0: way. I'm feeling like somewhere there's a teenage hangout for <clears> humpback <throat> whales that, <laughs> yeah. like, what's going on there? Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I guess it with with animals that live in the ocean and travel long distances, or even if they don't, but they go deep, you know, it's just hard to hard to observe directly, I suppose. Yeah, it is. It so, really is. Ah, very you know there 's
1: something you were just saying that really struck me this notion that you saw this uh uh greater white front of goose that's, right mm-hmm. um, and it was a, a collared one
0: yeah, so it was satellite and yeah. where
1: where was it tagged uh it was the so
0: it, the interesting thing about the tula geese is uh they are subspecies of greater white front of goose that nest in the Cook Inlet area um, mm. they actually okay. had a, a nesting ground Soon that, that got um destroyed by a volcano forty years, thirty or forty years ago. Fortunately, that was in the wintertime. Otherwise, it probably would have been really disastrous mm-hmm. for them when they came back. They, so they had to move en masse their breeding area uh, mm-hmm. as a result of this. But there's there's a place, this sub this subpopulation, there's a lake in Oregon, and I can't remember the name of the, the lake, uh, but on the east side of the Cascades, just just east of the Cascades, I believe, where this population goes every year. Okay, uh, And other white-fronted geese don't tend to go there. Right. And so it's a place where they can really target. You can imagine what it might be like trying to get out into the wilds of Cook Inlet, Mm -hmm. you know, surroundings towards the Alaska Peninsula. You know, it's not an easy place to, you can fly over and count nests, Although there it's forested, so that's one of the reasons they have a hard time. It's not like the tundra where you can just fly over and count mm-hmm. nesting uh, waterfowl. Mm-hmm. These ones are in the forested areas a little bit, so it's a little bit difficult. And so this, this lake provides a nice place. But that's, they, they routinely are capturing them there. And then they're wintering in the Central Valley, but they mix in with the other subspecies down there. so And it's not always easy to tell them apart. Well,
1: and what I find intriguing is when you see these birds just here in Sick Sound, you really don't know anything about where they've been, exactly. where they're going. You have a general sense because we know where the populations tend to migrate. But then you get your binoculars on it and you see that collar or you see a band. You contact the, the researcher who's looking at it and all of a sudden you get a little bit of the life history. You can kind of relate a little bit more to the animal. You know where it's been and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the way it is for us when we see these whales. They're naturally marked because they're flukes or Mm. have these distinctive markings on them. That's how we can recognize them. But, you know, we were just talking about uh, Leah seeing for the first time all these whales she's heard about in Hawaii from from her (laughs) lab mate. And Dane and I seeing Yin Yang, this well-known whale that's out there who has been in our sighting database since the 90s. Mm. I believe the first observation might have been in the 80s with Jan Straley or people working with Jan Straley and we just go out there and there's yin yang again yin yang disappeared for four months to go off to hawaii and we disappeared for four months but now we're all back here and kind of interacting it's pretty neat to have that kind of perspective
0: it is it is fun i've noticed that i mean it's so difficult for most of us to recognize animals as individuals they they are individuals you know they have their own lives and and if you get a chance i mean we know it with our pets you know different different pets have different Mm -hmm. personalities and Whatever that means in practice, whatever's going on, they, they interact with us in a way that's noticeably different. And so I always appreciate when there's individual birds that have, like, white feathers or something. And so I, just, I've decided to start giving them names, kind of like you do with the whales, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I have this junco in my yard that has white cheek patches, so that's white cheeks. and mm-hmm. uh, And I've been seeing that one. I saw that one. Last year it went away and I didn't see it in the summer, but it came back for the winter. And we had a banding project where we had color bands on songbirds. And so we were able to identify them as individuals as well. But yeah, with the whales, you know, and and then having all the nice names for them instead of, I, I guess there's probably a number name for them too. But uh,
1: yeah, we've been we've been slowly adopting the Southeast Alaska code that the Straley Lab, UAS Lab, and Glacier Bay have been using. So they're
0: all four digit codes. Okay, not nearly as
1: fun. Well, as yeah. Yin Yang, who has got a little Yin Yang patch <laughs> on his right. on his fluke okay.
0: or her fluke. Sorry, Domino is another one. I domino, that's, another that's one had that had, uh,
1: you can see why it got the name if you actually see that okay. that white fluke with the little dots on it.
0: So, yeah, it is it is more approachable, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and it helps you feel a little more connected to what's going on. But, yeah, it is fascinating. One year we had a uh, tail Godwit that was satellite tagged and had gotten blown off course. So they fly from Japan to they're aiming for western Alaska, but sometimes they get blown south and they end up over here. They just miss the Alaska Peninsula. And and they will go north, bar, uh, you know. And it was interesting. This is one of the leading birds, like in the ones that they had satellite transmitted. And you can watch in near real time on Fine. a website. Somebody emailed me and said, so there's this godwit up there. I, didn't, I went and looked for it. I didn't find it. But it was. It, it, despite going like 800 miles out of its way, it caught up with the other ones within four or five days. Like it spent two or three days here eating and then just like zoomed across to the north it knew how to get where it was going somehow from here despite being way off i don't know how that happens i don't know like i I guess in the in the water given the size and and the relative like strength of currents and stuff i don't imagine it's it's as significant for whales as it is birds like weather and wind and stuff in terms of moving them off course but presumably they have ways to figure out where they're going like the ocean seems kind of big and empty to me i
1: feel like when you're swimming at four or five knots
0: and one knot current could be a little bit of a yeah i suppose that's true
1: for sure Uh, it's not well understood how they migrate they're not using almost certainly not using celestial cues for obvious reasons they don't come up and have a look at the stars uh um, doesn't look like it's strictly magnetic maybe changes in the gravitational field of the earth that they're actually able to follow Hmm. but uh yeah it's it's still unresolved
0: and I suppose. Do you have tracks then of of their their like? Is it pretty much a straight line? Or it they, is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there, just,
1: there's some evidence that some of them stop at little hotspots, you know, little uh, upwelling zones and things like that. But by and large, for these Hawaiian ones, they're going straight across.
0: Hmm. Wow. So while you're hearing the sound, you're you're flying the drone, mm-hmm. Leah, and and like, I guess I guess that's a little bit weather dependent. We've had decent weather lately. So.
2: Yeah, it's been it's been on and off, but the days that we've gone out, I feel like have been. Nicer than we thought they were, even going out in the morning. And certainly with all these islands around, there's lees and areas that are workable. And I think we've been pretty fortunate finding whales in those areas on a lot of days. So it's my first time doing field work in Alaska. Oh. It's definitely pretty special.
0: Well, do you have to have a flat surface of the water, or can a little chop be okay? Still are they big enough that you're seeing what you need yeah, to see?
2: Yeah, I mean, a flat surface is ideal. And coming from Maui, it's definitely maybe a downgrade as far as like good image quality for... Um, Taking measurements, but is that due it's to water workable. clarity? Yeah, uh, clarity comes into it as well. Or just it's the really surface. a combination of surface chop, water clarity, and glare or right. light. So if it's overcast or like partly cloudy, it's sometimes even worse. You get this really harsh glare on the surface of the water, which obviously reduces your ability to see the outline of the whale clearly. But if it's only two of those three things, um, it's usually workable. Anything without white caps, any swell, it's you know small enough that I am feel comfortable landing the drone on the boat and uh, yeah, but we've definitely gotten some good data I would add here. to
1: that too, whale behavior is a big issue that's true, yeah and, and I know Jan Straley used to lament these whales here, I believe in November and January is when she'd experience it they'd come up to the surface once or twice they'd dive for 15-20 minutes and they'd come up a quarter mile away mm-hmm. yeah. so you just can't predict where they're going to be and they don't fluke very often so you can't tell who they are And then different species specific behaviors. They've actually started looking at gray whales. This is the
0: other part of the work we're doing here. Oh, you guys are going to work with gray whales
3: as well? Yeah, and they
1: can
2: certainly talk to that.
0: Have they, you've started seeing them already?
2: Yeah, we had, um, we've come across them twice and tried to collect some data on them. But yeah, what Andy was saying, I mean, the first time we saw them, they wouldn't show up, you know, super far away. They were kind of in the same one area, but. They would surface once and then go down for five five to seven minutes and pop up just somewhere completely different. And, you know, if you're trying to find them with a drone and then get over them and make sure the camera's oriented correctly and they only come up for a couple seconds once every five minutes, it's no matter how many flights you do, it's almost impossible to get in the right place to get a good measurement. But the second time we had them, they were a bit more surface active and kind of behaving and socializing with each other so it was a bit easier
0: do polarizing filters help with the surface glare or is that not the right angles to be helpful
2: they they do i know some people in the field that have used them uh we don't use them but or i don't at least personally when i am flying flying drones for our lab but you know it all depends on the angle that you're filming at and where the sun angle is and so i usually just adjust the exposure on the camera to account for some things like that.
0: I suppose here the sun uh, angle is lower than Hawaii mm-hmm. and that probably makes a difference for glare.
2: It does. Actually, in my experience, a lower sun angle is a little better. So oh, really? when I yeah. fly in Hawaii, whether it's for whales or dolphins, I find that the early morning flights between like 7 and 10 a.m. are the best because the sun is bouncing off at an angle and not reflecting straight up into the camera but if the sun's right overhead you actually get a lot more glare um midday so earlier morning light of course it has to be bright enough so you can see through the water but that's actually been okay
0: interesting so you're on the boat and you're managing the drone and can you identify the whale from above like or do you need pictures of the um the tail flukes to be able to
2: it's much easier to match it with the flukes Um, we're looking at Trying to see if we can match. I'm sure it's possible. They have like scars from barnacles and cookie cutter sharks and, you know, depending, a lot of different things. Um, so I'm sure it's possible, but in the field, most certainly easier with the flukes.
3: Yeah, generally easier with the flukes. I'd say it's an experience thing. The grad student who has been mentioned a couple times, Martin, has been out here also since 2018 when I started, and he's really good at recognizing individuals from the air. So he, because um, that's how he's seen them the whole time he's been out here. So he'll, Often fly over a group and know who's there before they've even started fluking, and can give us a cue of what we're looking for. Mm. But the flukes are certainly easier once, um, once they start going to match to known whales in the catalog.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. The other thing there too is if you are just looking at the entire population and going out every day trying to get as many of these body condition images as you can. Yes, it's very challenging to recognize individuals. But if you're focusing on a group of cooperative bubble net foragers for a couple days, for example, there can be 25 whales in that group over a couple days, and you'll get to know them quite well from up above. They do have fairly distinct pigmentation on the flippers that can do it. Mm -hmm. Shape of the dorsal fin or the uh, the trailing edge of the fluke, the, the back of the fluke. That's another way you can do it. And as Lee was saying, scarring patterns and even the placement of the hairs, the tubercles on their face is is characteristic of individuals.
0: Well, I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting how we, obviously animals are able to tell each other apart pretty well and, and how often, uh, like my brother and I, I don't think we look that much alike, so I'm very attuned to the differences between us. Other people think we look like twins, and so I'm like, mm, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's this interesting thing, like we recognize family resemblance, so we're just really, most of us, you know, I guess as folks with faith, face blindness and such but most of us are really good at when there's something meaningful to us uh having that visual information and it it almost is intuitive like you don't even Mm -hmm. really think about what is it that i'm seeing here no it just looks like that you know Mm -hmm. I, i tell people i says my goal here is to learn to recognize things. I don't bring an ID guide to the airport to meet my family. You know, I know who they are. I don't need to look at the checklist of uh, characters mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to figure that out. And and so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, at the species level at least, but then within that, if you're spending the time with them, you learn to recognize the individuals even. And it's kind of a, I don't know, I appreciate that. Not everybody really wants to take that approach, and that's fine. But uh, it does seem like, as, as uh, in your work, that comes pretty naturally if you're spending that much time
2: yeah it's definitely an hours logged kind of thing and i think it does make it more special and cool to go out whether it's with birds or whales or i study a lot of dolphins and after two years of work you can i can go out and be like oh it's double scoop and twin tip and this one and that one and you just yeah you're not even really looking at the specific feature but you have just seen them so many times that you know which one it is and i'm sure martin has the same um thing going on when he's flying the drone and sees these whales that are pretty new to me, but he would probably know more than half of that bubble netter group we had the other day.
0: Mm. And so you you mentioned you've been here since 2018, Dana. Yeah. And have you been working on this sort of a project the whole time or like do you have your own project?
3: Yeah, I don't actually do anything with drones except catch and launch them and (laughs) help carry them sometimes. But I started in 2018 as just a general intern and was working on helping with all of the research that was going on, so kind of the photo identification, population, abundance estimates. Um, but I've developed a project that is looking into the impact of humpbacks on carbon and nutrient cycling. So I, it's largely an oceanographic project, and um, I focus on the oceanography of the region and whale poop and how whale poop kind of might influence the oceanography in the region. So it's folded into our general surveys. In the summer, we are out there surveying a huge area, and as we're doing whale surveys, I also collect some oceanographic data um, and as much whale poop as I can find.
0: I see. So are you based out of Warm Springs in the summer? Then at I am. the field station there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I. How easy is it to find whale poop?
3: (laughs) It's pretty tricky. Actually made easier with drones, so that is the um, other way that I interact with drones largely. But it's hard to see from the surface, and it depends on what the whales are eating. When they've been eating fish, it seems to be quite watery and diffuse, and that's almost impossible to see from the boat. Um, When they've been eating krill, it's usually a little bit clumpier and bright red. Um, So sometimes if you're close by, you can see it from the boat. But because we have a drone in the air, a lot of the time that we're with whales getting body condition measurements, Um, often the drone pilot will see the fecal sample first and will kind of drop everything and direct to go collect that because it is actually somewhat rare to find them um, and important for a lot of data.
1: I I I I think the number last year was 550 photo IDs, 700 body condition images, no, 550 individuals, 1,600 photo IDs, 13 poop samples uh-huh. yeah. over four months.
3: 20 poop samples over three years, so I see. <laughs> they're rare.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess – yeah, I was kind of curious, like, how often – but, I mean, I suppose if they're pooping at depth or, or something that – I don't even know what they're – if they have a process, but
3: – Yeah. Well, the thought is that generally they poop towards the surface because they go through this mammalian dive response where they shut down a lot of metabolic processes when they dive to conserve energy. But, um, you know, at the surface for a humpback whale could be within the top 10 meters. And so if it's pooping at 8 meters depth, the whale doesn't care because it's going to be at the surface to breathe in a second. But I'm not going to see that fecal Mm -hmm. sample. So even when we're following these cooperative forager groups, which are clearly feeding for hours and hours and hours, and you'd expect would be producing quite a volume of poop, um, we don't see that many fecal samples.
0: And do they... It does their? I mean, I guess they don't eat for months when they migrate. Are they just like shutting down the whole? I, I guess there's still accumulation of stuff as they're consuming the, the tissue.
3: Yeah, uh, largely yes. There's not much. Um, not much fecal matter observed in hawaii although there are a couple folks that we work with in leah's lab who have told me they have seen fecal samples and that's probably a whale that was eating on its way down somewhere nearby and has just arrived and is still digesting but if they've been in hawaii for any amount of time they're probably not really excreting anymore
0: I guess there's no easy way to like time the the passage the passage time. I suppose if you could get them to eat a little transmitter that would come to the surface or something and beep at you when it was done. Yep. I don't know. One of the many challenges yeah. working
3: with whales. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can extrapolate from um, studies that people have done with captive animals, but a whale is very a humpback whale is very different from a captive dolphin. So there are a lot of error bars on any numbers that you're going to get from that.
0: Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, I bet that's yeah, fun to when the when the tourists come visit Warm Springs. So what do you study? Well, I'm out there chasing the whale poop. And, and yeah.
3: Like, it's fun to talk about. You can yeah. make most adults giggle yeah, just bet. by talking about poop.
0: <laughs> uh, and the kids probably love it too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Only 13 samples in a whole season. That's probably it'd probably be nice to to get a little more than that, I suppose. Is that mostly there in Chatham or are you going have other people recruited to when they when they see these things to collect for you?
3: yeah those are only samples that I've collected out in Chatham Frederick Sound, those yeah. areas. Um, my advisor, Heidi Pearson, who's in Juneau, has a lot of samples that folks she's collected and that folks have sent her. so some of the experiments we're going to do may involve those samples, but my my focus will be on the samples that I've collected
0: and when you sample. I mean, you mentioned that, like, in the case of of fish, it's pretty runny. And are are you just, like, getting essentially a water sample with some stuff in it?
3: Yeah, I kind of drag a plankton net through the water so it collects most of the large particles, might let some really small things pass through. But um, it basically collects a, a concentrated water sample, and the hope is that that will be... a a good amount of whale poop it's hard to control for where in the fecal plume you're collecting and how much you're collecting and how concentrated you're making it by dragging that net so that is another source of error in these measurements but um, it's kind of an assumed source of error it's hard to control for that when you're in the field
0: and so ultimately you're hoping to answer questions related to like uh, what do they call it in antarctica or something the whale pump or, or something like that uh, Yeah similar exactly. To those sorts of questions were like how much nutrients are coming from below and being deposited at the surface and then being bio- bioavailable for the plankton and everything.
3: Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think the whale pump is exactly that idea that the whales are pooping at the surface and depositing nutrients that are like you said bioavailable to phytoplankton and there's a lot of excitement about that that Um, That could be a source of stimulation of carbon sequestration, but I think we kind of have to pump the brakes a little bit to see how how much nutrients are actually going into the water and how the phytoplankton respond so that we can kind of quantify the potential impacts to the carbon cycle. I think maybe more important are the potential impacts to the local ecosystem. So like you were saying, Antarctica, there have been some studies that um, show the whale poop may actually be fertilizing enough phytoplankton to support their prey source almost as if they're gardening um not intentionally but kind of accidentally through their through pooping at the surface and I think that would be an important implication of humpbacks pump pooping up here they may be fertilizing enough productivity to kind of help support the ecosystem that mm-hmm. they're thriving off of
0: so yeah i'd be interested to i guess it'll probably be a little while before you get all your results and and that sort of thing, but it'd be interesting to see what you. Yeah, with, with can
3: definitely keep you posted.
0: Yeah, so when you mentioned y'all are looking at gray whales too, that was one thing I actually remember sitting out at the at the parking lot at uh Mart last year with with Jan. There had been some Jan Straley. There had been some gray whales right offshore, like the day before, or earlier that day. We didn't end up seeing any. They were further out. I did see some like right on the shore, just along the road system here. But out off cruise off, kind of the eastern shore of cruise off, the southeastern shore that runs fairly north-south, from Kamanoi Point down as far as Shoals Point and kind of the St. Louis area, there were, like, hundreds of gray whales. And the interesting thing to me is it wasn't that long ago. Like, we just, you know, you'd see a gray whale or two in the spring. I remember it was kind of big news in the paper. There was one that hung out off Seamart for one year, and they thought it was a young one. But just the last few years, it's like the gray whales figured out there's food here, and I don't know if they're just targeting the... Herring eggs, probably that's part of what they're going after, but it seems like they're feeding in places where the herring didn't spawn as well. So presumably, you know, once they're here, they're like, oh, we'll just load up on whatever we find. Um, But I don't know, is like the population increasing and that's part of what's driving it? Or is it just like, oh, new food source. So now we have a new rest stop along the way on our migration. Um, but yeah, I don't know if anybody knows like what's going on with those, uh, or not, but yeah, I'm kind of curious.
1: Yeah. As are we, um, <laughs> the couple things for one, they've been, um, there's been a, a unusual mortality event declared for gray whales for the last three years, I believe that just means a higher number of individuals are, are dying than you'd expect than any sort of baseline level. And, and these are being counted, washed up on shores and so forth. I think, Last year was in the low 100. Is that numbers? throughout their range? or Yeah, so they, they, people have been seeing them in, in Mexico all the way up to Alaska. I think, by and large, most of the mortality occurs on the return migration back to the foraging grounds when they've gone through that whole fast and all that. But that suggests that there's been some fairly substantial ecosystem perturbations that has impacted the, the food source for those whales, probably up in the Bering Sea. So that's one of the issues um, that we think might be driving this. As you said, um, and I'm not even familiar with this myself, from my own observations, because most of my work is on the inside waters where we don't have gray whales, but talking with Jan Straley and Lauren Wilde. Um, it seems there's been a major uptick in the number of gray whales that are here maybe the last two or three years. Yeah, uh, yeah kind of that
0: neighborhood, maybe a little bit longer. The
1: but number I keep hearing is 150 individuals being counted out there.
0: Yeah, it. Yeah, it's always hard to know because it depends on who's counting a little mm-hmm. bit. But certainly, and it's hard to count them when you're just mm-hmm. on a boat and they're just like, I remember sitting off of um, Kamanoi Point Beach area there and just looking around and like, I think I counted as many as 40 blows act like at wow. once, So wow. there were just that many right, yeah. that were at the surface and I don't know how many were in the water and, and they were also further down and further mm-hmm. out and some folks were saying there was more out by Shoals Point than mm-hmm. there was. And so it's, hard, it's always hard to know because they do move around and stuff as well. But yeah. yeah, lots of whales and it seemed like it ramped up like the first year or two maybe there wasn't quite as many but mm-hmm. then there was gotten to be a lot of them.
1: Yeah, but and we've been talking with Jan about this and more recently Lauren Wilds at UAS and so we're trying to basically conduct a pilot study right now, and to see, first of all, how many whales are out there. Um, is this a, a workable system? Can we actually go out there and collect meaningful data? One of the issues that we've encountered in the last couple days is gray whales don't behave quite like humpback whales do, so it might be a little bit more challenging to get body condition images, which would be important. They tend to be hanging around, at least so that they've seen uh, the herring spawn, which makes the water a lot cloudier, which makes it also difficult. Um, And they also are kind of out there a little bit deeper in the sound where it's been, the conditions can be a little bit rougher than where we're seeing the humpbacks up in Hayward, for example. Um, And so we're trying to determine whether we can turn this into a long-term monitoring program just to, as you said, identify how many whales are out there. Are they eating herring eggs? That's a big question. As you can imagine, that's a very important question from an ecosystem perspective, but also from a commercial fishery perspective. Perspective. There's 150 whales showing up now, hungry whales showing up and feeding for a month and a half on herring. That's going to have a big impact on this, on this population of fish. So all of these are the questions that we're really interested in looking at.
0: Mm. And the interesting thing to me is it seemed like the gray whales showed up after herring spawn, generally speaking. So like last year, it was mid-April when mm-hmm. I remember seeing them. When I was out there, and I know other people saw them, I don't get out on the boat that often, so I don't have as much opportunity to observe them that directly. Although there were a few, like the bigger numbers, and they were in shallow water, like mm-hmm. right off of Cruzoff. They're just all along the shoreline. Which is there. typical mm-hmm. anyway for gray whales oh, okay. throughout the yeah. range. Um,
1: they and, are generalist foragers. They will feed on amphipods that are buried in the sediment. They'll feed on planktonic organisms, mice and shrimp. Um, they feed on any number of different things. So they have a diverse array of foraging tactics. So it may be that they're feeding in areas where the herring are spawning, but they're not feeding on herring spawn yeah, on eggs. Um, that would be notable. Uh, I'm not aware of any baleen whale that feeds on fish eggs,
0: for right. mm-hmm. Well, it, it's an interesting, yeah, it'd be interesting because they're all along there and the herring aren't, I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of herring eggs like on the sandy beaches in mm-hmm. the sand where it's a sand bottom. And some of the places I was seeing them, I think it's pretty sandy. Uh, one of the places along the road, so like right on the shore, uh, you know, I think the water couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And they were, I guess they do this kind of corkscrew thing. And so you could just see the like part of their tail just at the surface mm-hmm. corkscrewing around. And there was two of them just right on the beach there. And then um, and then they sw- they swam off. But, uh, yeah, the active ones out it cruise off, the water would have been a little significantly deeper than that but not like super deep and
1: it is very common in puget sound for example for them to be feeding in very shallow sandy, okay. sandy feeding yeah. on the bottom you can see the the sediment plumes trailing behind them um i understand you can actually see them from the satellite you can count oh, wow. or estimate abundance of forging whales from satellites looking at those those uh, marks that they make on the bottom huh so it's very shallow water
0: wow yeah so it would be interesting i guess if you yeah, will get a chance to a uh, bit there was a big spawning event well, I don't know how big, I guess. But they spawned out at, at Shoals Point. I guess it remains to be seen how dense the eggs were there because that's always a question. In the last day or two? Yeah, this, right. the, the initial spawning of the of the herring. And who knows, you know, they, they it's always a little bit of a mystery where they're going to spawn every year. It seems like the, it, it can be fairly variable. And then the density of eggs in any given spot can be quite variable as well. And so it is a lot of that cruise offshore line. There's large sandy beaches, but there's also a lot of rocky areas and i don't know you know i don't even know if the whales are out there like how much they're feeding and how much they're doing whatever it else it is that gray whales do i don't know what they're what they're doing but i hear stories of um i guess Grey whales in what is it, in the Gulf of Mexico, there's they come up to boats all the time and like there's kind of things that they do there. Mm-hmm. There was somebody I saw there like the gray whale came right up to their boat and was like sort of checking them out. Yeah, they do. They were pretty excited about that. <coughs> yeah, I was just down there about a month ago and that
1: happened. They they uh, not quite the mugging that a lot of people get. You yeah. can actually kiss them and, <laughs> and play the, the harp on their baleen basically. Wow. Um but yeah, apparently they've started doing that a little bit here. Well that's I've talked to observers. Last year, yeah. yeah, last
0: year somebody in a boat that like it came up up to the boat and you know,
1: around Neva Neva
0: Strait or something like that in yeah, that area. I think the one that I remember hearing about was out by Lazaria, but oh, I don't, okay. I don't really makes know for sure. Uh, I just remember hearing about it. It's a somebody that has a has a boat in town. Um, and I didn't ask him directly. I just, he had like a little video of the whale there mm. right at his it's, boat.
1: It's a yeah. wild behavior that they do that. I mean, these are whales. They they used to hunt gray whales in those lagoons, mm-hmm. you know, 100 years ago. And they would shoot the females, or shoot the calves, I should say, so the females would come over, and then they were much more easy uh, easy to whale. And here we are 100 years later, and these moms are pushing their calves up to these boats so you can rub their noses and stuff. Oh, wow.
0: Huh. It's wild. <laughs> and is there a population... I mean, I guess that's always one of the questions, right? I remember that coming up with humpback whales and the population growth that was sustained over decades was mm-hmm. substantial. And I feel like maybe I heard somebody say that there may have been more humpbacks in southeast Alaska than there ever was at some point in the last decade or so, just because of the changes in uh, carrying capacity since the mm-hmm. whaling started. And that Glacier Bay is much more open now than it was 150 years ago, Definitely. Uh, when when before the whaling started. So, um, I don't know if that's also true of. And obviously, there's other conditions, especially in the Bering Sea for for gray whales, of changes in sea ice and and uh, you know some of the crab stocks and stuff that they're concerned about up there. But uh, you know, is there a sense of what the sort of, I mean, carrying capacity isn't? It's not like it's a fixed target, right? Because no, the, the eco ecosystem is constantly changing in one year may be fine another year may not be so kind of a, a dynamic equilibrium maybe we'd call mm-hmm. uh, a range of, of things is there a sense that these whale populations are, are maybe around that level or or you know i, I I don't know what folks are thinking around those terms. Yeah, I believe it was late 90s, early 2000s. There was a
1: big crash in the population of gray whales, some 700 or 800 whales, I think. Could have been quite a lot more than that. I, the numbers I may be off. but um, And that was the first suggestion that I ever heard, that maybe they've they reached carrying capacity. As you said, carrying capacity now may not be where carrying capacity was 200 years ago. So whether they recovered to their old numbers or not is almost irrelevant. Right. Um But again, as I mentioned earlier, they've been going through another UME, unusual mortality event, more recently, suggesting that for whatever reason, the population is not uh, sufficiently productive to sustain them. That's what it seems to be. Because most of the whales that have wound up dead on the beach have been emaciated. Mm -hmm. Um, So clearly it's tied to food availability. they seem to be hovering around the low 20,000-ish number for, like, the last couple decades. Um, so, yeah.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting to think about the dynamics of population in wild populations. We're used to being able to provide for our own food and move food around in cases of, you know, weather and climate events in a particular area. Mm-hmm. If there's drought or excessive rain or whatever, we can ship food, but these animals don't do that. So... You know, what does it mean, like, to have the, the carrying capacity, you know, in one year, the next year? And that just seems to be how it probably goes. It's mm-hmm. like you have a bad year and, and a bunch of whales die, mm-hmm. or animals, whatever the species might be. And in some cases, there's, you know, clear cycles with shorter-lived animals. Those are easier to observe, you know, yes. your your famous predator-prey relationships of lynx and, and voles, mm-hmm. and or rabbits, I mean. And um, I suppose in the case of whales, which have a more complicated diet, diet I mean it's it's they're eating a lot of different things presumably and then the health content of like the the species of krill as I understand it are important to the humpback whales in terms of whether they can bulk up or not Mm -hmm. uh and the dynamics of that but there's also other things that they can eat that aren't maybe as great but they're they're going to survive some
1: species more than others for sure Uh, okay gray whales being a fair example of that humpback whales are very much generalist as well they'll feed on any number of species of krill and schooling fish and so forth but um it does seem a little bit like we've pulled the rug out from them a few times (laughs) you know with this whole carrying capacity issue um
0: yeah, yeah. it's, I guess, been difficult with long-lived animals to, to see. And I don't wonder about that even with herring. Or like a few years ago, there was a, a big pulse of um, of uh, black cod, just oh. like massive numbers of juvenile black cod. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's not unusual. And like a lot of years, you won't see many. Like there's, there's always spawning happening. But mm-hmm. some years, there's just massive years. And I was reminded when I was watching the talk about that, about Eastern hardwood forests in North America, like they have they call them mast years mm-hmm. where like all the trees like every year you 'll find some acorns, but some years all the trees in an area will have them they 're just massive amounts, and that 's what supported the passenger pigeon population as oh, I understand wow. it these billions of birds they would fly you know the stories are that like the flock would be flying over for days there were so many of these yeah. birds, but they would be moving between places where there was these bumper crops of of um, of seeds you know acorns that they were eating or whatever else that they were eating and so i wonder if that happens sometimes in animals or there's just some pattern where you know some years mm-hmm. it all works out and you get massive massive uh, uh, success in reproduction and mm-hmm. but a lot of years
1: you yeah know, that's the the classic divide between the rnk selected okay. species yeah. ones that are long-lived and invest heavily into a few offspring versus short-lived individuals that invest heavily in many offspring and Of course, some of the things you spoke about. I don't know, black cod, sablefish, um, breeding, uh, history, and so It's kind of a
0: mystery because, you know, they're breeding, as I understand it, they're breeding in deep water. So, Mm -hmm. again, it's difficult to observe directly. But what you'll see is the the juveniles showing up Mm -hmm. in the juvenile areas that they, like some of the bays and stuff, that they'll show up. Or they'll show up in places they don't usually show up. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the ways that they can identify oh we have a bumper crop of of sable fish this year
1: thing is with these whales they are long lived um they may go multiple years without having calves that's usually the first response we expect if the, mm-hmm. if the productivity of their of their habitat declines they're just not going to breed um and because they are so large they can sustain themselves obviously for four months at a time if they're going to migrate for a humpback whale and so they can sustain themselves for months if they have to searching for better uh, prey resources and they could forego their migration entirely and feed here in Alaska all year round if they had to. So with all that, that's why it's particularly surprising when you see these unusual mortality events where you're getting old adult animals that really have figured out their habitat and know how to sustain themselves, all of a sudden winding up dead on the shore. And
0: and apparently of starvation.
3: Of, of em- yeah.
0: Yeah, they're emaciated starvation. Yeah. starvation.
3: Seems to be a pretty good argument for these long-term data sets that exist and that we're kind of trying to Start to generate that include the oceanography and phytoplankton and the zooplankton and the body condition and the individual identification because then hopefully, you know, 10 years from now we can see some patterns. So it's not just if we don't see calves, we don't immediately just go to prey. It could be something with the water temperature, the phytoplankton, or, you know, at different levels in the ecosystem. Um, factors could be affecting the whale health and survival that we wouldn't necessarily see if you're just observing the individuals year after year. Yeah,
0: my my background, academic background in statistics and so I I have had a tendency over the years to especially as I came to understand better just my own subjective impressions having grown up here and then started looking at data, having experiences as an adult and then looking at data for weather even something as simple as just weather and Understanding that we're instinctively we don't do very well with variation, like we have a, a sort of baseline which becomes normal for us, and then variations away from that will stand out to us, but we don't really know, and that's often a very short term kind of thing. Uh, we don't have a, a good sense without doing the data collection that you're describing, like what is long term variability? These animals are obviously been around for long time and, and experience a lot of variation over that time. And so they're adapted to a certain range of variation. When you move outside that envelope, maybe then things get to be a problem. But we don't even know what that envelope is. Mm-hmm. Right. And trying to understand that better seems challenging, but, right. but important.
3: <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of like there's some long term whale data with, you know, whalers collected data on the whales that they were landing, but then they also skewed the data by taking vast the vast majority of the whales out of the water, so it's hard to know if that if those data are still kind of relevant to the data that we're collecting today
0: yeah, well, I guess as always there's lots of questions out there, especially with your dealing with animals that like to More stay every in day. the water all the time yeah yeah <laughs> but um yeah, as we kind of wrapping up and getting towards the end here, Leah, anything you'd like to to share just about you know what's what's going on in your your time here and and what you're looking forward to? going forward
2: yeah um again this is my first time doing field work in alaska and i've heard about it for many years from my lab mates so it's been really exciting to be up here and kind of witness the feeding ground side of humpback whale behavior um certainly different than what we see in maui so that's been very exciting especially seeing those famous bubble netters that i've heard about for so many years it's pretty special uh and then the the gray whale project as well um it's cool to be a part of a project that is just kind of and it's pilot stages, you know, might happen, might not. But, you know, there's this new phenomena of them being here. And it's just cool to be a part of the beginnings of that and document some things that maybe not too many people have ever documented.
0: Nice. Well, I suppose seeing a bubble net feeding from a drone is is kind of its own thing as well, like the way they it's all come up. It's
2: very cool. If I can manage to orient the drone at the behavior in time, right? <laughs> it's oh, actually enough. pretty difficult. But. Yeah,
0: I guess the 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 goals when I've been observing it, it's always the goals seem to get it figured out first i guess there's probably a few flying above and when they go the rest of them queue on that every once in a while though they they mess up and they'll fly one way we, and then we oh, refer
1: well. to them as false friends <laughs> yes there's like 50 percent of
0: the time they're right 50 percent of the time ah, they're see. wrong so it's pretty much random yeah that's interesting mm-hmm. uh that's funny and then how about you dana
3: yeah i mean i would agree it's really fun to be part of this gray whale project as it's starting and i there was a gray whale that went kind of seemed to kind of to stray a couple years ago and was in the inside water so that's the only gray whale i'd seen up until the past couple of weeks that's so been fun um but it also is exciting to be in the field <clears throat> and see again some of these whales that i've seen for the past five years um come back and get excited for the upcoming field season that starts at the end of may
0: Oh, so you're here now, and then get a little bit of a break, and and then are you like taking classes and stuff as well? Yeah, I'm so. finishing up
3: some classes. I see <clears throat> those end in May at the beginning of May, and then we'll be back. Um, and it's fun to have a project that's kind of a subset of the larger picture and try to figure out how it all fits together. Um, that's kind of my area of interest: is the big ecosystem picture, how these different systems are actually really one big system. So mm-hmm. it's fun. It'll be fun to be out in the summer and. Keep collecting data and keep talking to other students who are out there working on different projects.
0: So you'll you'll be out driving the boats and and hoping for hoping crossing fingers that one of those drone pilots will will see a, exactly. see a fecal plume for you to go <laughs> chase after. Yep, exactly. Fun. All right. Well, and and Andy, I guess I imagine you'll be back at at uh, I, the the. Alaska Whale Foundation uh, field camp? Yep. Field site?
1: Yep, yep. I actually had back there probably Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on the weather, Um, just kind of opening things up. We don't have our team getting out there until right around the middle of May, I think. That's when people are going to start arriving, and then the whole program really kicks off by the end of May and onwards. And... One of the things we're really excited about, and and Dana kind of alluded to this, she's doing all this um, oceanographic work, looking at temperature and salinity and nutrient levels and all that, which is very foundational to everything that we're doing. And I'm hoping this year we're going to add two new initiatives to start looking at phytoplankton and zooplankton, which are kind of the crucial links between what she's looking at and virtually every other major consumer out there. And if you really want to understand the health of the ocean and these marine ecosystems, you really have to include that. So... We're gonna be doing a couple of feasibility assessments this year, trying to see if we can factor that into a program.
0: So that be estimating volumes or, or actually looking at species composition, all of the above? Yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'd like to say everything. I think it's a little bit easier right. to say that than actually to go out there and do it in practice, but we will be looking at we're looking at community composition of phytoplankton, zooplankton communities. Energetic levels, lipid levels in zooplankton, which is very important. Uh, it's basically similar to what we're doing with the with the whales, looking at their body volumes, uh, but energy levels. And some estimates of biomass as well. We are working very closely with uh, Limblad National Geographic, who have the expedition ships that run around up here every year. And we're actually working with them to install hydroacoustic echo sounders or sonars mm. on their vessels so that those vessels will be collecting Zooplankton abundance and distribution data for us, twenty four hours a day while they're out there running back and forth.
0: Oh, sonar is sensitive enough to.
1: You can measure the. You can estimate the biomass of krill, for example, and you can separate krill from copepods and from fish and so forth. So it's an extremely powerful tool. Wow. And that would be this very low cost approach using these platforms of opportunity to uh, to collect these data that feed into our program.
0: Yeah, I know that the um, CTOR... Lab here in Sitka with with uh, you know incorporating they l- primarily looking at shellfish, but I think as part of that they 've done some plankton monitoring because they 're looking mm-hmm. for the species that are uh, have the toxins and when those bloom and and some of that work, so yeah, I think there is some some at least um, looking at plankton uh, of of those those types I guess those would be phytoplankton rather than the zooplankton mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see what all comes. It's always fun to hear. I don't, I guess you don't come this way quite as much these days. Uh, well, uh, we might be a little bit more. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah, we've, we've kind of shifted our operations or at least where we keep our vessels in the wintertime over to Petersburg. Um, we ended up buying our boats over there, so it was easy to do that. Um, so we bring a lot of our interns through, but this year it looks like we're having a lot of people coming through Sitka. So we'll be back and forth and I hope increasingly we'll be working with, uh, lauren over there in uas um so yeah
0: we'll be around all right well sounds good i look forward to hearing updates maybe hearing about the um the role of of whale and whale poop in in our ecosystems when you when you learn more about that and you think you'll be back in alaska or
2: yeah i at the beginning of the year i wouldn't have guessed that i'd be here at all but i might be up here two or three times this year i think okay so So,
0: well it's nice to meet you all and thanks for spending some time to visit with me that's fun
3: thanks for having us
0: You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this spring with Andy Zabo, Leah McPherson, and Dana Block. I want to thank them for taking some time away from their fieldwork to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, nature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.